It was early June, 1998. We just arrived in Cameroon about six months prior, and we'd done that first six months actually living in the city, trying to get it figured out what life was going to be like in this new country that we had gone to adopt and to be Bible translators in. After that first six months, we finally figured out where we were going to live. We found our village, we'd rented a house, we started to do some renovations in the house. And by June, or by late middle of May, it was ready to move in. And so we had moved. We brought all the stuff that we had collected and shipped over to Cameroon, four years worth of clothes for our two young daughters, various other things. I remember we had clocks. We brought clocks because we weren't, sure, we weren't sure if we could find them in Cameroon. We had loaded everything into the house, so we didn't have very much furniture. We had a little bit to start with, and we were getting into life in the village. But as happens when you have small children, one night uh, one of our daughters was sick, and uh, so she wasn't sleeping very well, and my wife Becky decided to go and sleep with our daughter in her bedroom, and I was going to take the other daughter and sleep with her in our bedroom. So sleeping away somewhere between one and two in the morning, new things weren't quite right in the household, that's okay. But as often happens, you hear a noise. Well, I wonder what that noise is. Well, you know, the house is an absolute wreck because we hadn't arranged anything yet. Maybe Becky was up going to the bathroom trying to uh, take care of, you know, our sick daughter. I better get up and take a look. So I whipped up my flashlight. Everybody in Cameron has to have a flashlight. You never know when the power is going to go off. I had whipped up my flashlight and walked out of the door of the bedroom. And there was a man in my living room. Remember, it was dark. All I could see was in a, with, with the, uh, the flashlight. And he looked at me and he said, where's all your money? I said, money? Now, what was going through my mind? I was half asleep, mind you. I'd just gone up because I thought I was going to find Becky there. And obviously, this was not Becky. <laughs> money? What, it, what sort of money do you want? He says, no, I, I want your money now. Give it to me. And he hauls off, it hits me across the front of the face. I find out there's two other guys standing behind him. This guy here happened to have a convenient little gun in his hand with a long clip on it and everything. So my brain was starting to catch up that this was not just something random that had happened. It wasn't just a drunk villager who happened to wander into the house in the middle for some strange reason, but something was seriously wrong. So I said, well, I'll show you what I have. And I took him over to the office where we'd have a, a small little safe that we'd brought with us. And I opened it up and I said, well, here, this is what I have. It was about the equivalent of $30. Now, $30 is maybe a, a month's wage in the village. So it wasn't nothing. But he was definitely looking for a lot more than that. He says, where's your money? This is all I have. Honestly, this is all I have. It's like, I have nothing to buy here in the village. If I want to buy something, I go out to the city and I have money there, but I don't have money here. Go back to your bedroom. So eventually I went back to the bedroom. By then I found that Becky and uh, our other daughter had been, they had found her and brought her into the bedroom. They were sitting on the bed and of course the one who had been sleeping with me was by now wide awake. And they were sitting there on the bed. They told me, lie down on the floor. 
well, okay, I'll lie down on the floor. This is a cold concrete floor, not very comfortable, mind you. And I was sitting here looking at these guys, and the guy with the gun was holding him on me, and the other two, we could hear from the sound that they were kind of ransacking the house, looking for money, looking for whatever they could find. And so we had the one guy sitting with us, one guard, the rest of them were doing their work, and eventually the, the question came, well, where's the keys to your truck? Now our truck had been purchased for 41,000 U.S. dollars. It was a shared project between us and this other missionary family. We'd been raising money for it for two or three years. And God had provided it all, and we'd just gotten it. I mean, we'd gotten it six months ago when we got into the country. I said, well, you know, the keys used to be on the shelf right up here, but you've really made a wreck of the bedroom, like everything had been pulled out. I said, that's where they used to be. I have no idea where they are now. Um, He started to look through everything, looking for the keys, and finally found them. And eventually we heard them go out and open up the doors, and they started pulling out the various things they'd found in our house that were of interest to them. As I lay down on the floor there, you know, different things going through my mind, you know, what should I do? Do I do anything? What are they going to do? And all this sort of stuff happened over a period of about 20, 25 minutes. And finally they said, uh, okay, well, uh, we're going to leave now. You better not follow us or we're going to go after your teammates. Um, get up on the bed. So I got up back on the bed and uh, they had found some, some board in the ransacking of the house, and they backed back myself, you know, just like in the movies, tied our hands together back to back like that, and said, uh, this is, you know, you stay here, and don't come after us. And they also made the comment, see, we're very kind to you. We could have done much worse. Thank you very much. I didn't think about it in those contexts, in that context at that point in time. So they, they left, and we waited until the sound of the, the truck had died off in the distance, and then Becky and I started to do this untying thing, trying to figure out how to get these cords off, because we couldn't move. And they hadn't done a really tight job. They had been nice, see? And uh, they hadn't done a really tight job. It only took us about a minute or so to get ourselves free. And I remember getting up from bed and walking to the bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, what just happened? And then the fear came. What happens, what will happen to our teammates? What will happen in the future? And so I thought, well, I better go check on them. So I got up after I'd uh, finished there in the bathroom and and walked the block down the path, woke them up in the middle of the night and said, just to let you know, we just were robbed. The truck's gone. Our house is a mess. The door's broken in where they'd come in. That was the, well, actually, we didn't hear the door break. We heard them running into furniture. That was the noise I'd heard. And that was beginning, a beginning for a long journey for me for dealing with the trauma of an unexpected event like that. Today we're going to talk about the life cycle of hope. Bill, if you could put that first slide up there. The life cycle of hope. Psalm 11 starts this way. This is David's friends speaking to him. I'm going to start the third line of verse 1. We're not going to start from the very beginning. Fly like a bird to the mountains for safety, they said. The wicked are stringing their bows and fitting their arrows on the bowstrings. They shoot from the shadows at those whose hearts are right. 
The foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? Sound pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Why do we need hope? Solomon wrote in Proverbs, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. Without hope, we don't function very well, do we? We start looking inward, and just like when I was dealing with all the fear or the aftermath of that thing, it felt like the walls were closing in. In times like that, we need God, obviously, but we need to think. And one of the things I I was learning in this class I'm taking um, as part of my, my program that I started a few weeks ago was this terminology of theological reflection. And much of what I'm sharing this morning is not uh, new with me. A lot of it came from a book by Laurie Green. It said, let's do theology. And in there, Laurie makes the point that theology is not something that we read. It's not something that we study. I mean, it can be those things. But actually, theology is something that we do. Theology is is taking in those things that are important to us, but then acting on them in light of what we've learned. And so, I want to introduce you to the life cycle of hope. The H is just for saying help. You don't need hope if you already have hope, right? Hope is for the hopeless. And certainly that's what David's friends did here. He said, this is crazy. Things are coming apart. What can the righteous do? We need help. And we read in Psalm 13, same situation. We need help. So that's the freebie. That was simple. But then the O is observe. The first step in the life cycle of hope is observing what's going on around you. And that's really what David's friends are doing in Psalm 11 when they were describing the, the wicked. The wicked are stringing their bows. The wicked are arming themselves. They shoot from the shadows, they wrote, and at, at those whose hearts are right. Well, they're hidden. We can't see our enemies. They're, they're kind of nebulous, kind of fuzzy. We, we can't see what's going on. And who's their target? Their target is me. The target is the righteous. You need to observe what's going on around us when you walk into difficult situations. Think about it from different angles. Understand, okay, what really is happening here? But once you get the facts, once you've done your observation, the next one is Ah, there we go. That was the one I was just reading to you. That's why what happened. The next one is ponder. P for ponder. The re- remaining part of that psalm, verses 4 to 7, says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. He watches everyone closely, examining every person on earth. Part of theological reflection, the third stage after you've looked at the facts of the situation, is to reflect on what you know of God, what you know of his word, what you know of his character and immerse yourself in that. And that's what David is doing here when he writes, 
The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked. He hates those who love violence. He will rain down blazing coals and burning sulfur on the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. For the righteous Lord loves justice. The virtuous will see his face. You notice there in verse 4a, Yahweh, Jehovah, is present. He's in his holy temple. He's there. He's not absent somewhere. He's not, he's not in a place where we don't know. He's in his seat of power. He's present. The second part of verse 4, he's watching everyone closely, examining everyone on the earth. He's ruling from heaven. He's a ruler. He, he hasn't abdicated his right and his reign and his role. He's ruling there. And he's watching everyone, both the righteous and the wicked, mind you. The righteous don't get a free pass. He watches us too. Nothing escapes him. He's an observant Jehovah. He's always aware of what's happening there. And Jehovah is not ambivalent. The last verse, for the righteous Lord loves justice. The virtuous will see his face. He cares. He has opinions about what's going on. He loves, and the previous verse talks about him hating and punishing those who are wicked. So the writer David here has pondered and thought about, okay, what does he know about our God? What does he know about Jehovah? And the last is engage. What do you do now? Fortunately, this psalm doesn't, or unfortunately, this psalm doesn't continue past verse 7. We don't know what David did with this. But what is, it, is interesting is if you go back to the very first line of verse 1, it's almost like he did this in reverse order. The first line says what? I don't have it here. And my clicker's now working. O oh Lord, I take, I take refuge in you. That's where all this led him to. I take refuge in you. That's what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to rely on you as my Jehovah because I know who you are. I trust in the Lord for protection is how the New Living says it. Let's try this again. Can you go to the next slide for me, please, Bill? So how do we apply that for ourselves? If we've done our observation, we've done our pondering, our reflecting, if we truly want to engage with something, how do we apply it? And the best way to do it, what we had to do in class, was to actually to pick something, what's going on in our lives right now, and actually spend the time to do some theological reflection. And to choose action to do something about it. There's many things we could pick in today's world, but I just wanted to, to highlight one thing, and uh, you can take this however you'd like to, to take it. But starting with observe, let's talk about COVID. It's one of the big things that's kind of taught most in most of our minds. Observe, you could add lots to this list, I'm sure. We've got some onerous restrictions on us. Our supplies are limited, our plans are delayed. There's a lot of physical suffering going on, death of loved ones, loss of control, fear of government overreach, fear of irreversible loss of freedoms, our future is unclear, 
the truth is sometimes murky, what really is happening, and our routines are permanently altered. And I'm sure you could add some of your own to that list. So then, if that's what's going on in our situation, how do we reflect on it? How do we ponder on it? And here's again just a short list of mind thinking. Suffering is normal to be expected, 1 Corinthians 4 and Hebrews 2. We follow in the train of many others who have endured much worse than we have in this particular context. As we reminded from Psalm 11, Jehovah is in his holy temple. He is present. We know that he's watching. And we know that he does not abandon his children. For many verses in scripture we can read that. He's working all things for his glory. And his plan is perfect and right. So if that's what scripture tells us about the truth of this Lord Jehovah whom we serve, then what is the E part? How do we engage with it? What is the action that we take from that? Here's some more reflections. God has provided me with an opportunity to show how a believer can respond to difficulty. He's provided opportunity to serve others, to go the extra miles, to love mercy, to abhor violence. And those of you who are aware of the Kairos course in January, that also awakened for me seeing the people around us as part of the discipleship task that God has given us to do. So how do we engage? That's something I can't answer for you. That's something that each one of you need to spend the time to reflect theologically how you can engage with COVID in a theologically correct way. But recognizing that God knew all this was going to happen, recognizing that he put all of us in this particular situation, let me mention a few things that came to me as I was preparing for this. Complaining has no place in my vocabulary. Verbal violence, certainly violence has no place in my action, but verbal violence also has no place because it is of God. That I should not turtle, but rather to look and see what God is doing and choose to join in with that, as Henry Blackaby has written much about. Keeping my eyes in his face and not on circumstances, practicing generosity towards those who are in suffering, and something that it really came to me as I've, over the last several weeks, long before I was preparing for this, is what is the subject of my conversation to be? Should it be about all the difficulties of what I'm going through with COVID? Or should my conversation be about what God is doing in me and how I can encourage somebody else and highlight what God is doing around the world? What doors is God opening? We heard a couple of weeks ago on, from prayer meeting about what God's doing through the Billy Graham Association and many other places around the world that COVID is opening up doors and creating new opportunities. And it also highlights that sometimes our time is short. We don't know when things are going to fall apart. So should it not also renew our calling to make disciples of all nations? The nations certainly that God has brought to Three Hills, the ones we run across as we go into Calgary or Olds or Airdrie for shopping. Isn't that 
what he has in mind when he brings difficulties along the way for his own people? I'll leave that for you to continue to consider how God would ask you to engage. But, you know, the good thing is once you get through that process of hope, the cycle, it is a cycle, doesn't end because as you engage, as you choose to act, then you have new experiences. And God does something new because your attitude has changed. You're seeing things in a different way. And as you see new things, then you begin the cycle all over again. You have a new experience and you learn from it and you continue to move ahead. We don't know what else happened directly in the context of Psalm 11. It says it was written for the choir director, so it probably was written later on in David's ministry. But we know that God blessed David through even all the difficult times that he had. It was a golden age for Israel, or at least the beginning of a golden age for Israel when he became king. For us, into the, our situation, the trauma of, of going through that particular robbery and everything that happened after that, about six months later, became very clear one of the reasons why God allowed it is that the people in our village, when they heard what had happened, were ashamed that robbers would come and hurt guests in their village. It wasn't people from the village, it's people, they were outsiders who had come and done, and done this. And so news had spread. Everybody had talked about it. And we went, as we were trying to meet new people in new villages and tell them what we were doing, one of their first questions were, where are you from? And we would tell them, from Big Bukondo, from this this village and said, oh, are you the ones who were robbed? I said, yeah, we were the ones. Well, come down and sit down and tell us about it. We're so sorry. We want to hear what happened. And we have an instant open door, an instant relationship that we would not have had otherwise. God used that to break open a huge door and accelerate our entry into that, um, that whole region. So God knew what he was about. I would suggest that God knows what he's about with COVID as well. He has a purpose in mind, and it's up to his church to act on that purpose, to spend the time in theological reflection. You know, the very last verse in Psalm 11 talks about the virtuous will see his face. And in some ways, that's the end goal, right? Aren't all of us, I hope, here looking forward to seeing his face, being face to face with him? That's the outcome of hope, that we will see his face. Last week, we got to read or have read to us this verse twice. I don't think you can read Scripture too many times, but I want to read it once again for you. Would you stand with me? I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, would you read it back? to me. And I wish you could read it and turn to your neighbor at the same time. But speak it to your neighbor. Speak it to our community. This is our prayer for each other. Let's read it together. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. You may be seated.